Now at verse 3. And Jacob sent messengers before him to Esau, his brother, unto the land of Seir, the country of Edom. And he commanded them, saying, Thus shall ye speak unto my lord Esau. My servant Jacob saith thus, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed there until now. The words sojourned and the words stayed there really could be translated literally, I was a pilgrim and I was detained. In Jacob's mind, his sojourning in the land of Laban was a matter of detention. His character or his status was one of a pilgrim. And I have oxen, verse 5, and asses, flocks, and men servants, and women servants. And I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find grace in thy sight. Just pause there, uh, friend, you and I know that, that oh, I hope we know at this juncture that, that Jacob is not given to vain niceties. Um, it is impious just to engage in, in vanity uh, for the sake of custom. We saw that already in the life of Abraham. So we shouldn't see this as pure, uh, as pure politicking, if you will. Uh, you and I are supposed to see here that there's something genuine in Jacob. And we're going to see that in a moment's time. But, but what I want you to recognize, especially in this juncture, is that Jacob comes to his brother Esau. And really, friend, the sense is, in this moment, it's as though he's allowing Esau every worldly advantage. In other words, Jacob doesn't quite mind how much Esau has or takes, and is even pleased to call him Lord in an earthly, in an earthly sense. And friend, that, that underscores for us what Jacob was after and what he wasn't after when he sought the blessing of God. His principal desire was not for the earthly blessings that were attached to the covenant. These things Jacob is quite willing to yield to Esau. The chief blessing that he longed for obviously was spiritual. That God would be his. That God would become his shield, an exceeding great reward. Verse 7, sorry, verse 6 rather. And the messengers returned to Jacob saying, We came to thy brother Esau. And also he cometh to meet thee, and four hundred men with him. This is no entourage. This is an army. Verse 7. Then Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him, and the flocks and herds and the camels, into two bands, and said, If Esau come to the one company and smite it, then another company which is left shall escape. Uh, this is typical ancient Near Eastern custom. Protect a caravan. Nothing is out of the normal, out of the ordinary, rather, in, in Jacob's response. Verse 9 And Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham, and God of my father Isaac, the Lord which saidst unto me, Return unto thy country and to thy kindred, and I will deal well with thee. I want to pause there just for a moment because I do want us to linger with this prayer. Uh, as you look at Jacob's response, the first thing that the patriarch does is that he separates his, his host into two bands. Now, immediately thereafter, he falls to prayer. And I want you to notice the first thing that he carries before God. First of all, he invokes the name of God. And it's not just the name of his creator. It's the name of his covenant God. 
note that he's quick to identify the one whom he's addressing as the one who has covenanted with Abraham, his grandfather, Isaac, his father, and of course himself. He is coming to God by way of covenant. The second thing you notice here is that he brings before God this simple statement, one that I think could be quickly overlooked, and that is that God had enjoined a command upon Jacob. In other words, Jacob didn't leave Laban, however afflicting that sojourn was to him, on his own accord. He left under divine direction. And so he goes before God and he says, genuinely, all that I have done here is what you have commanded. What I am now faced with, I am faced with as a loyal and a dutiful servant. Now come to verse verse 10. I am not worthy of the least of all the mercies and of all the truth which thou hast showed unto thy servant. With my staff I passed over this Jordan, and now I am become two bands. Now, previously, the patriarch goes before God, there carrying with him the covenant that God has made with him. But now, Jacob comes, as it were, naked, carrying nothing in his hand, nothing by which to barter with God. It's a striking thing, and I think we could quickly overlook how deep a crisis this was for the patriarch. What really was in danger in Jacob's mind was nothing less than the lives of his own family. His principal concern was the extermination of those whom God had given him in the land of Laban. And yet, as he goes before God, he urges nothing of himself by which to merit any good from God's hand. In fact, he does quite the opposite, doesn't he? He goes before God descrying any, any merit in himself. The least mercies God has given him. Jacob says he was unworthy of them all. He registers then thanks to God's free grace in this element of the prayer. And here you and I see the humility of the patriarch. Jacob is not, is not according to popular caricatures, the kind of, of hook-nosed, conniving, arrogant man that so many more recent commentators would make him out to be. Uh, we've already seen that that's not the case, and we see that so very pointedly in this passage. Again, at verse 11. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him, lest he will come and smite me, and the mother with the children. That last phrase there um, could be somewhat complex, I suppose, because we recognize that actually in Jacob's band there are four mothers, and each of them have children. So this expression at the end here is actually colloquial. Uh, This is something that would be quite often spoken in those times, and, and not too not too long ago either, simply to refer to a full extermination of a people. It's a colloquial expression in which you have a general experience indicated. And that's important to keep in front of us, especially because of what follows. Verse 12, And thou saidst, I will surely do thee good, and make thy seed as the sand of the sea which cannot be numbered for multitude. Now, he sets a general or colloquial expression against God's promise in verse 12. It may be a general experience for people to be exterminated. It certainly was 
massacres were not uncommon. But Jacob says in verse 12, the Lord has promised something else to me. What was a general experience for others was not, according to the promise of God, to be Jacob's. And so Jacob brings that to God in prayer. Now that brings us then to verse 13. And he lodged there that same night and took of that which came to his hand a present for Esau his brother, 200 she-goats and 20 he-goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 milch camels and their colts, 40 kine and 10 bulls, 20 she-asses and 10 foals. And he delivered them into the hand of his servants, every drove by themselves, and said unto his servants, Pass over before me, and put a space betwixt drove and drove. And he commanded the foremost, saying, When Esau, my brother, meeteth thee, asketh thee, saying, Whose art thou, and whither goest thou, and whose are these before thee? Then thou shalt say, They be thy servant Jacob's. It is a present sent unto my Lord Esau. And behold, also he is behind us. And so commanded he the second and the third and all that followed the droves, saying, On this manner shall you speak unto Esau when you find him. Say ye moreover, Behold, the servant Jacob, thy servant Jacob is behind us. For he said, I will appease him with this present that goeth before me. And afterward I will see his face. Peradventure he will accept of me. So, with the present over before him, and himself lodged that night in the company. And he rose up that night and took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the ford of Jabbok. And he took them and sent them over the brook and sent over that he had. Just very briefly, I want you to notice that the bands and the droves are distinct. The bands that Jacob divides into two constitute his household. The droves, you notice here, um, I guess it would be up here at verse 19, there are more than three droves. And so the idea is Jacob will send over his cattle primarily before him, then will follow the bands with his wives and his children and himself at the end. Again, all of this is quite customary. Uh, there are some who would like to fault the patriarch here, um, I think unduly. But what you do have is a mention to where they're at in verse 22. They're at the river Jabbok, or Jabbok. Translated literally, that is, the river of wrestling. It's a striking thing, and we'll see why that is in just a moment. Verse 24 and Jacob was left alone, and there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of the day. And when he saw that he, that is God, prevailed not against him, that is Jacob, he, God, touched the hollow of his thigh, and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he, again, that is God, said, let me go. For the day breaketh. And he said, I will not let thee go, except thou bless me. I want to pause right there. I know not too long ago we, we took up this text. Um, but I, I want us to look at this uh, just very briefly for a moment. Again, the pronouns are quite important here. 
and as they direct us into thinking about this text, much of what you have here seems paradoxical. Uh, just again, take verse 25. When he, that is God, saw that he, again God, prevailed not against him, that's Jacob. We would think that that ought to be in the reverse, wouldn't we? Then, when you come down here to verse 26, when he, that is God, said, let me go for the day breaketh, one would expect that that should really be the cry of Jacob, not Jehovah. It seems quite paradoxical. And I want you to hold that sense of, of paradox with you um, as, we, as we leave this text, because we'll, re- we'll revisit, it, revisit it in our time here at the end. This is a perplexing moment, um, not only for Jacob, but for interpreters right throughout the centuries. But it's also one that's crucial. And we see that because of what follows. After Jacob asks for God's blessing in verse 27, we find this. And he said unto him, What is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Thy name shall be called no more Jacob, but Israel. For as a prince hast thou power with God and with men, and hast prevailed. This is where Israel gets its name. And sadly, as shocking as this moment is, uh, I think most of the time we, we don't appreciate how significant um, this wrestling truly is, not only for Jacob, but for all of Israel. Israel's name um, could be translated in various ways. Um, in the 17th century, commentators debated, was it one who prevailed with God or was it one who was a prince with God? And the reality is uh, that deserves two or three lectures on its own. We simply don't have time this morning to, to raise all of the questions that come from that. But, but in the syntax, certainly, Israel has, in one sense, both views in mind. Um, Jacob is not a prince apart from his wrestling. And Jacob's prevailing is not, with, not as one who is undignified, but one who is princely, favored by God. So really, there's no, there's no reason to debate the point at the end. Uh, if he is a prince, it is because, in one sense, he perseveres with God. If he pers- perseveres with God, it is in a royal, a princely way because of who God had made him by way of election. Uh, so if you want to say that Israel means one who perseveres with God or who is a prince with God, I think we need to remember both elements as we find it in this text. Verse 29, and Jacob asked him and said, Tell me, I pray thee, thy name. And he said, Wherefore is it that thou dost ask after my name? And he blessed him there. I'll just highlight, I know that I spoke at length on this months ago, but really the parallel to Jacob's question here is what you have in the book of Judges with Manoah. Manoah asking the angel, announcing the birth of Samson, why askest thou thus after my name, seeing it is secret? The word secret there is the word wonderful. Um, It's important for us to remember, friend, in the scriptures, the name of God and the essence of God are treated as one, um, especially in contexts like this. Um, And so here, the Lord is very pointedly saying, you need not ask any further, need no greater revelation than I've given you. You are to be content with what you've received. And he, of course, then blesses Jacob 
And then as we close, verses 30 to 32, and Jacob called the place of the name of the place Peniel, that is Pene, that is face of, and then El, that is God, that is the face of God. For I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. And as he passed over Penuel, the sun rose upon him, and he halted upon his thigh. Therefore, the children of Israel eat not of the sinew it shrank, which is upon the hollow of the thigh unto this day, because he touched the hollow of Jacob's thigh in the sinew that shrank. Verse 32, you and I are told that while it may not seem significant to the 21st century reader, to the church underage, this moment was duly recognized as a watershed moment, not only for the patriarch, but for all of Israel. And so Moses records here that to his day, centuries later, um, this memorial had lived on among the people of God. Now, as we close, I want us to look at a number of things here. I want us to look, first of all, at the literary structure of the text, because I think this is quite important. Uh, without bogging ourselves down too much or, or being too technical, I, I want us to notice here that this text is really roped off by what we call inclusio. Inclusio is simply a similar idea, name, phrase, that, that is followed by another. And the purpose of that, and this is what's so crucial for us as we try to understand the scriptures as the scriptures lead us to understand them, is that built into the text then is this idea that this is supposed to be treated as one unit. The inclusion is what you have in verses 1 and 2, where you have Jacob naming a place after divine theophany. I want you to notice, that's precisely how chapter, that's how chapter 32 closes too. Jacob names the place after divine theophany, after theophany. Sorry for the, the redundancy there, but the, the idea there is, is that this text is supposed to be treated as a single unit. Now, if that's the case, then we need to move on beyond that. As, as wonderful, as exciting as, as those literary structures are to find, they're obviously driving us to see something crucial about the text itself. So what is it that is so significant about this roped-off section of text? Well, I think... I think unquestionably the significance comes with the theophany when God appears as he does on the Jabbok. Now, when we think about theophany, uh, it's important for us to remember that, that God appears extraordinarily in various ways, of course, throughout the Old Testament. But I want you to remember that, that it is various, the, the, main, the means that God employs to manifest his glory. And the question you might ask is why? Just recall for a moment a number of themes that we gain from theophany. Take, for instance, the burning bush. Uh, in the burning bush, what do you have? You have Moses there at Sinai. He's there while, his, while God's people are in the furnace of affliction. But they're not destroyed. So how does God appear to Moses? in a bush that is burning but not consumed. Take Joshua. Joshua is, of course, going to engage in conquest throughout the land of promise. But do you remember how God appears to Joshua? This time, not a burning bush, 
he appears to him as a man of war. Why is that significant? Well, because, of course, Joshua will lead the host of Israel into battle. So theophanies are always tied, really. Their, their form, their material is tied to the content and to the context. So the question is, why this form? Why this material here in Genesis 32? Why does God appear as Jacob's combatant? It's a crucial question. And friend, I'd submit to you that the answer is given in the naming of Israel, and, and really one that could be easily inferred even from Jacob's prayer. If you look back to Jacob's prayer just for a moment, you remember that Jacob goes before God and says, everything that I'm now encountering, I'm encountering because I have faithfully, faithfully obeyed what you've commanded. But the one who is the God of providence the one who, who is commanded is the one and the same God. And now under divine providence, Jacob is faced with a very, what he feels is a very real possibility that his family will be exterminated. Now we, of course, can blame Esau for all of that, certainly. But is it not true, as the psalmist reminds us, that even, even the wicked are God's sword? That they do his bidding. They work his decree. Does it not seem as though in this moment Jacob is wrestling against the very God of providence? Or, to put it more directly, does it not feel as though perhaps the God of providence is wrestling with the patriarch? We can go further, and certainly we do. As you look at Jacob wrestling, you'll notice here that Jacob continues. Uh, now, he's an aged man. He's not as old as he will be, of course, later on and toward the end of his life, but he's still an older man. And yet he wrestles all the night through. And even whenever he is miraculously wounded, and there, friend, I'd submit that you and I are supposed to recognize the patriarch recognizes who his combatant is. There, he continues to wrestle. And even when God in Theophany says, let him go, what does Jacob say? I will not, unless you bless me. What you and I are supposed to see in that moment is really the exercise of true faith. I know, I know I've preached on this again not too long ago, but what you and I are supposed to see here is that Jacob was possessed of a faith that would not let God go until he had known his blessing. Such was the earnest desire of Jacob for God to be his God. Now, friend, as we hold all of that together, this theophany then teaches us that God's people will often appear to be wrestling, not against the wicked, not against the world generally, but it is part and parcel of Christian experience to appear as though they're wrestling against their very covenant God. And so, all of Israel is given a name to reflect that. It does not belong to the mature in the Christian life. It belongs to the identity of Christians to experience what Jacob does here in some sense. To be one who, as it were, wrestling against the very God who has entered into covenant with you through his Son. So as we close, uh, friend, the first point that I raise is one of examination. If you go back to verse 2, you'll recognize that the name here is Mahanim, and 
may wonder, well, why is that? If you know, if you know Hebrew, you recognize that, that the very last two letters there indicate plurality. If you have a note in your translation, you'll notice as well that this is translated roughly to hosts. Who are the two hosts? Well, the answer to that is really straightforward, isn't it? The one is the angelic host that appears to Jacob. But who's the other? Manifestly, it's Jacob's. And what Jacob is saying here, and this is really important, we could quickly miss this. Jacob is saying that both belong to God. Both are God's hosts. The band that Jacob brings with him from Laban, they belong to God. Just as the angelic host belongs to God, both are his. And you see that so powerfully reflected in Jacob's prayer that follows. Everything Jacob traces back to free grace. All that God has given him, Jacob says he was unworthy of the least. And so, friend, this leads us to that question. Do we see all that we have as being God's? Do we see all that we have as being something that comes from God's free benevolence? Jacob certainly does. And that leads him also to reflect on himself. Do we see ourselves unworthy of the least of God's mercies? Unworthy of the very breath that you and I draw? Jacob does. But then, friend, the third question of examination is, do we rest in the covenant promises? How bold is Jacob in this text? He's buttressed by fear, acknowledged. And certainly that ought to be acknowledged. But you see that he nonetheless holds to the very God who seems to be afflicting him. Even the very God who seems to be his combatant. Jacob will not let him go. And that's not from pride. You need to recognize in this text that it's covenant. It is God's promises to him that enable Jacob to be so bold with the Lord. Such is Jacob's resilience in resting upon that promise. Such is Jacob's faith in the covenant. Even when God appears to be his enemy, Jacob will hold to it nonetheless. Do we rest in God's promises in that way? But the point of comfort from this text, friend, is this, that first of all, God answered Jacob's prayer Wonderfully. And while you and I shouldn't expect theophany, we should remember that when God does call his people into the greatest of afflictions and they cry out to him, God often reserves for them the greatest mercies. Um, Our God is, as the prophet reminds us, the one who stays his south wind when he brings his east. And and so we need to remember that here you have a picture of God's mercy to the patriarch, even as he wrestles with him. But I would close by by saying this. This passage ought to be near and dear to us. Uh, I said that to you months ago, and I, I still believe it. In fact, in many ways, this ought to be, for Christian discipleship, one of the first places we take new converts. Because what this text teaches us is that, in truth, Wrestling with God is not for the mature. It is for anyone who is numbered among God's people, such that they get their name from this moment. If they are the Israel of God, 
then they are a people who will wrestle with God. There will be times whenever God holds the rod against his people. What we've learned in this text is that sometimes, sometimes that rod is especially sharp. But what is enjoined upon God's people is the command to hold to him by covenant. And so, friend, we we do that as we look to Jesus Christ by faith, trusting ourselves to him who has promised all in his Son and in whom there is no shadow of turning. May the Lord make us such a faithful and trusting people in our own generation. Let's stand uh, to come to, to God in prayer. Our blessed and eternal God, we thank you and we praise you for your mercies, for your kindnesses towards us. And Father, we praise you and we thank you that you are a God who who indeed has promised, sworn by a name, his own name, because he could swear by none greater, that he would be our God and we his people. Father, we thank you for the blessed promises that we receive, for the assurance that they will indeed all be fulfilled. And we ask then in the interim that you be merciful to us as we wait for the consummation of redemption. We pray, Father, that you would make us a people who lodge our souls in those covenant promises, that we would entrust ourselves utterly to Christ's tender keeping. And Father, we pray that you would lead us to do so even when it seems, even when it seems in providence, in the experience of desertion, that you are our enemy. Lord, let us eye you through the covenant, through Jesus Christ. And Lord, we pray then that we would be faithful through every affliction and trial for your own name's sake. And as we come to worship this, this morning, we ask that your mercies would attend us. We are so needy. We have often been in this place often under your word and often observing the means of grace. But Father, we know by experience that unless your spirit goes with these things, that we will leave as we came. And so for your own name's sake, we pray visit us in mercy. As we ask all in Jesus' blessed name. Amen.